Hello! This is Resurrections, an Adam Warlock podcast, episode 2. I am your host, Al Sedano, and I'd like to start off by thanking everybody who downloaded and listened to episode 0 and 1. I've received through Facebook and a few other ways some kind words from the people who've listened to it, so I'd like appreciate that. Um, the only real complaint I've heard from anybody is that the volume level could be, is a bit low at times, but thankfully not inaudibly low, so hopefully this one will be a bit louder. So, let's get started with the topic of this episode, which will be Fantastic Four number 67, which is part two of the two-part origin and first appearance of Adam Warlock. Just before we get started with issue 67, I just want to do a quick review of the characters and the events of issue 66, in case anybody's forgotten. So, real quick, here are our main cast. We have the Fantastic Four, uh, led by Mr. Fantastic, Reed Richards, super smart, able to stretch. Uh, his wife, or fiance, I forget, Invisible Girl, Susan Storm, turns visible. Her brother, the Human Torch, Johnny Storm, firepowers. The Thing, Ben Grimm, friend, and turned into basically a rocky monster. Leisha Masters, The Thing's girlfriend, blind sculptress. Crystal, Johnny's girlfriend, who also has elemental superpowers. And then we have our bad guys, uh, the Enclave, who work out of a place called the Beehive, which does not look like a beehive. Uh, There are three main scientists, Morlack, who's bald, Shinsky, who has white hair, and Zolta, who smokes a pipe, because they're pretty forgettable, but which one's which, so that's the only way you're going to remember. Hamilton is one of their chief guys. He's the guy who kidnapped Alicia and is traveling with her right now. And then there is him, who will be known eventually as Adam Warlock, which is a creation of these guys. All right, so for those of you who don't remember, here's also a quick recap of what happened in Fantastic Four 66. In Fantastic Four 66, uh, the Fantastic Four discover Alicia is missing. Turns out Alicia is taken by a group called the Enclave, who operate out of a building called the Beehive. Uh, They're a group of scientists who have faked their death for the purpose of creating life um, and then using that life to uh, populate the world and they would be in charge of what's left of the world. Unfortunately, their creation uh, became somewhat aware, I guess, and escaped them and is hiding in the caverns behind where their base is. And they've not even been able to see it So they, because it's glowing energy, so they uh, kidnapped slash recruited Alicia Masters, who is a noted blind sculptress who uses her hands to sculpt, so therefore she can try and get close to it to see, using her hands, its face, and sculpt it so they can see. And meanwhile, the FF is trying to find a way to track her. Um, Reed thinks that he has an image of the person who took her, and he has some, the person had some kind of wristband on that you, he used to teleport and Reed thinks he can copy that, which he's trying to do now. Everybody caught up now? Good. All right, here we go. Fantastic Four 67. Uh, it's cover dated October 1967, uh, but it was actually published on July 11th, 1967. <clears throat> on our cover, it's a white background uh, with a, the cocoon huge in the middle opening. And the six main characters, which is Reed, Sue, Ben, Johnny, Alicia, Crystal... And Hamilton are all around it. Uh, the cover art's by Jack Kirby. And the story is called When Opens the Cocoon. 
And on the first page, we get the credits, proudly produced by Stan, the man, Lee, and Jack King, Kirby, exotically embellished by Joe Sinnott, laboriously lettered by Artie Simic. Our story opens in the Fantastic Four's headquarters, as Reed works on the coordinates for where Alicia was taken. Ben grumbles that Reed is wasting time with a bunch of dopey doodles. What in blaze is that messed up mishmash supposed to mean anyway? Reed explains he was trying to study the circuits of the wristband in detail in order to copy them and make his own transporting wristband. After Reed receives an order of subminiature components from Stark Industries, our view moves to Alicia and Hamilton in the caverns behind Lock 41, searching for the creature created by the beehive. The creature creates an explosion in the cavern, and Hamilton shoots in response. However, his attack is repelled, and Alicia continues on her own, while Hamilton is stopped from moving by the creature. While this is happening, the three chief scientists, bald, white-haired, and pipe-smoking, watch it all on a CCTV scanner, and debate if creating this creature as part of their plan to rule the world was a good idea or not. White-haired scientist tells the others of a backup plan he has devised. Is an ultrasonic wave which will surround the creature and send him into deep space. Back in the Baxter building, Crystal serves Johnny breakfast and is momentarily startled when his hand bursts into flame to cook his toast more. They are joined by Sue and Ben, and then Reed, who announces after two straight days he is finished. In the caverns, Alicia follows the creature's voice until she reaches it, but instead of being able to see its face, it's in a large cocoon. It tells her that it is too weak to come out yet, and Alicia vows to protect it until it can. Reed has now duplicated the wristband, and the three male members are about to leave to rescue Alicia. They ask Sue and Crystal to wait behind because it might be too dangerous. The three men then hold hands, and using the wristband, jump through a wall. Sue reacts with hysteria, because she apparently has not been paying attention at all since last issue. The Fantastic Three arrive at the Beehive, and start beating the hell out of the foot soldiers. Meanwhile, in the cavern, the tentacles the creature had created to stop Hamilton from moving disappear, and he goes to find Alicia. He finds her with a cocoon and reveals to her that they only wanted a creature they could control and would serve them. Since that is not happening, it must be destroyed. However, the creature stops him, and then the cocoon opens. Inside the beehive proper, the thing has found out where Alicia had been taken, and forces one of the soldiers to take them there. In the cavern, Alicia and Hamilton run from the explosions produced by the creature emerging from his cocoon. The creature tells them that Alicia need not to worry for her safety, but Hamilton is another matter. Hamilton is then killed by an explosion, causing part of the cavern to collapse on him. Running blindly, Alicia runs into Ben's arms. With the entire beehive now falling apart around them, the four run to find a means of escape. Unknown to them, they are being watched by camera by the three buff, nameless scientists. However, they are not concerned by the heroes, but by their creature. Feeling that they have no other option, they go to use their anti-gravity transmitter, which somehow controls the ultrasonic wave they mentioned earlier. Sadly for them, the device does not work. The creature had read their minds and mentally disabled this weapon. Reaching the blank wall they arrived through, the three members of the FF and Alicia jump through. The three scientists are also racing for that same spot but are blocked by the appearance of their creature. He decides that the world is not ready for him yet, and he will willingly depart for deep space, but his departure causes the total destruction of the beehive, and all inside. Alright, that was a cool issue. Actually, I enjoyed that issue a lot more than the last issue. Ironically enough, though, also I have a lot more notes of 
bizarreness and goofiness and just stuff that didn't make sense to me for this issue. Go figure. Anyway, first of all, let's go back to the cover. Now, like I said, the cover was a white background with the cocoon in the middle and the, the six figures of the characters around it. And it's cool. Look, I like it. But it does just look like they just basically cut those figure, pictures out from the comic, from the original artwork, and pasted them on just a white background and used that as the cover. Now, I mean, if you've read any Kirby stuff, especially from the late 60s, early 70s, you know he did like to do collages. But his collages tend to be more, I don't want to say technical, but they, evolve, they look like they involve like, pictures from telescopes. And then he would add the characters in there. This just looks like Kirby was just really, really tired and had about five minutes to get a cover done. But he did it, at least. Alright, in the first page, we see Reed and Ben in, well, I guess, Reed's lab. And Reed, of course, has one of those old 60s-style huge computers that's like takes up the whole room. I love when stuff in that time period has a computer in it. It doesn't matter if it's an actual picture or film from real computers or something made up like in a comic or in a movie. It's just great, especially when you look, I look down at my phone and I realize that's probably way more powerful than the computer. There's a note from the editor on the bottom of the page that says, Special Order Computer Furnished by the Friendly Forbush Leasing Corp. And I have to ask, would Reed actually lease his computers? I mean, isn't he smart enough to build a computer? I mean, maybe that could be why the Fantastic Four, they keep going bankrupt every couple of years. He's just blowing money on stuff that he can make a lot cheaper. It's kind of, it's like the torch buying flamethrowers. And I also like to point out the name Forbush. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, Forbush Man was a unofficial made-up ma mascot that Stanley made up back in the 60s. Um, I know he appeared in some of their humor titles like What The and uh, Foom probably. Well, I don't know if Foom was a humor title, but they had some, you know, they occasionally have a humor title and he was a kind of a mascot character for Marvel. Basically, he was a guy with a... Red, wearing red footy pajamas with a F badly sewn onto his chest with a blue cape that I think was a towel tied around his neck and a pot with two eye holes, kind of like the Golden Age Red Tornado, except this pot actually had a handle sticking out the back. And I don't think it was actually based on a real person, at least nobody that I read of that worked at Marvel. might have been somebody Stan knew. But yeah, so every once in a while in the 60s, Stan will mention Irving Forbush... Or throwing the name Forbush somewhere, and that's what that's about. Uh, we're on page two now, and this is where um, Ben's complaining about Reed wasting time with a bunch of dopesy doodles. And the doodles actually is a whole is a big schematic of the wristband that Reed's trying to duplicate. And he has notes written all around it. And I know it was Stan trying to be technical with the notes, but the notes read, you know, some of the notes are recheck mini circuit before testing and calibrate all computations to nearest decimal and like i said stan's trying to be technical because he doesn't know that stuff so i'll give him a little slack on that but those are kind of those would be kind of insulting for somebody who reads intelligence you know check stuff you know make sure you calibrate you think someone as smart as him would know how to calibrate his equipment and check everything it's like leaving myself notes for in the morning remember to wear pants shoes before socks and I do find it a nice bit of continuity, though, when he gets in the micro-units. He ordered them from Stark, which is obviously Stark Enterprises, otherwise known as the guy who is Iron Man, Tony Stark. But I do like when they get the micro-units, they have to be kept uh, sterile, so him and Ben have to put on these white containment units. 
if, you, if you're able to find page three somewhere online, I'm hoping I can so I can put it on the site. Because the thing's wearing his little white suit and his white hat and stick. Looks like a member of the KKK. And I'm not saying the KKK is funny, but eh, screw him. They should be ridiculous. And he looks ridiculous at it. Luke looks ridiculous in that outfit. On page six, this is the part where the white-haired scientist tells the other two about his backup plan to deal with their creature in case they can't figure out how to control it. And to get to where his backup plan is, they have to ride on this little like train car that they say runs on a vacuum power. First of all, I want to say that when they're riding, anyone when they're riding in the car, there's they're in the foreground, the background. Anyone else in the background would have drawn something blank. Most people, at least, would have drawn a blank background or just put some color in there or one or two people working or a wall. Not Kirby. He puts a whole friggin' base back there. I mean, it. You look, just look at this image. You can see that base goes on for at least a mile or two. And so I just want to give Kirby props for that because that's impressive little bit of detail that is a lot of people wouldn't do anymore. And the man put the effort and time in, and at least he deserves that credit. I mean, I'm remaking you know some goof with this, but... I do love Stan and Jack's work, so I do want to at least give you know throw out some credit there when I can. But now back to goofing. Um, yeah, it runs in vacuum powder. I'm sorry, vacuum power, not powder. And I don't really understand how that works. I mean, maybe I know less science than Stan. Can someone explain that to me? Is that a thing? Please tell me I'm wrong and that's a real thing because I don't know how that works. I'm just starting to think that Stan's just grabbing random words and adding power to them and. That's how it works. And speaking of stand science, their failsafe is an anti-gravity transmitter that produces an ultrasonic wave. It sounds like sound science to me. I'm good with that. Moving on. Here on page 7 is the scene where, um, it's the page where Crystal is serving Johnny breakfast. And I'm just wondering, was it normal in the 60s for girls to serve their boyfriend's food like they're a waitress? I mean, she's just standing there bringing him food as, as he's eating it, like he's gonna tip her when he leaves. I mean, and more more importantly, not just was it normal for girls or teenage girls in the sixties to do that, but would it have been normal for a member of the royal family than humans. I mean, she's royalty. Wouldn't she be expecting somebody to come serve them both, at the very least? Uh, just seemed really weird. I mean, granted, it was the sixties, but I still don't think that was normal. But I guess for them it was, because the next page when Sue and Ben come in, Ben sits down and Sue puts on an apron and makes him food. And his breakfast is wheat cakes? <laughs> I mean, was he raised by May too? I'd never even heard of wheat cakes before reading Spider-Man. And apparently that was his favorite breakfast. And I want to know, what are wheat cakes? I mean, are they actually different from pancakes, or is that just like a regional term for them? Does anyone else want to go to IHOP? I just want to say, and then little Jack Kirby gushing page tens, Alicia with the uh, by the cocoon. That's pretty damn cool looking. That's a cool looking cocoon. In fact, it's, if you go to the Tumblr page, it's the first one of the first images I posted. And then on page eleven, Reed has the device all ready to go, and they're ready to rescue Alicia. But no, Crystal and Sue, you can't go. It's too dangerous for a girl. You got to stay here, because you know we have not been in any dangerous situations before that you've been involved with, even before you had the power to create invisible force fields and protect yourself that way. Got all of the blatant chauvinism back then. And then, after Sue and Crystal agree to stay behind, Reed, Ben, and Johnny use the 
a wristband device to teleport over, to jump to the wall, to teleport to where Alicia it went. And Sue has such a hysterical reaction that Crystal has to restrain, is visibly restraining her from leaping into the wall after them. And I understand she's concerned for them, and she's concerned about her friend Alicia. But the reaction they give her, it's both in the words and the picture, so it's not like, let's say, Stan wrote, oh, I hope they come back safe, and Jack Kirby drew them all, drew her freaking out, or vice versa, that Jack drew normal and Stan put in these crazy words. They both did it, so it must have been something they both agreed on. But her reaction is so extreme as if she had no clue this was going to be happening. As if she has not been paying attention to the recent events. I mean, isn't that what Ree was working on for the last two days? I mean, maybe it wasn't sexism on part of the characters that made her believe her there. Maybe it's, you know, she's just that stupid and shocked by things that she should know. I mean, is she that freaked out by vacuum that picks up dirt? I mean, normally, out of the four of them, Johnny's considered to be the uh, slow one. But I'm wondering if this panel is showing us that Sue is more similar to him than just having a last name and hair color. All right, we're getting to the end of the issue. Uh, page 13, Ben is destroying the crap out of the uh, beehive, and I love it. He is tearing that place up. And then on page 16 of panel 3, when Ben convinces one of their soldiers to cho- to take them to where Alicia is, and when they get there, he used the soldier for leverage to jump out of that air car, smashing his face in the controller. It's great. And then finally, we finally get to page 20, where finally we see Adam Warlock. Even though he's not called Adam Warlock, it's just easier to call him Adam Warlock than him. And I'm getting annoyed saying they're creation or creature. And I was right in issue, episode 0 when I talked about him. He looks like Rocky from Rocky Horror Picture Show. A golden Rocky. And I have to wonder why, when Adam was in the cocoon, he decided to give himself shiny underwear and nothing else to wear. Right before he destroys the beehive, Adam said something that I had to look up because I was trying to figure out what the hell it meant and what it had to do with this issue. And he says to the uh, three scientists, Mankind will never know that I have saved it from the menace of this hidden human beehive. But someday... A half-remembered legend may tell of the time, the time a cocoon burst open, proving in one cataclysmic moment that the child is father to the man. So that was the thing I wasn't sure of. The child is father to the man. I wasn't. That was obviously a quote from something. So apparently Adam had time to read in his cocoon. And it turns out it's a poem by William Wordsworth, who was a late 18th century, early 19th century English poet. And it's from the poem, My Heart Leaps Up When I Behold, from 1802. My heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. So was it when my life began, so is it now I am a man. So be it when I shall grow old, or let me die. The child is father of the man. I could wish my days to be, bound each to each by natural piety. So, I read that poem. And I still had no clue what the hell the quote meant as far as with regard to Adam, or even what it meant in general. So I did some digging and looked it up. And now it's poetry, so there are several possible meanings, of course. But the answer I liked the best, the one that made the most sense, was that it's supposed to be that, um, according to the author of the poem, at least, William Wordsworth, 
a man actually becomes a complete man only after he has a child. Because the child teaches him to actually be a man. And so therefore it says that, you know, by the responsibility he has of having to raise the child and teach the child to be a man himself, the child, you know, makes his father become a man. And therefore the child is father to the man. Alright, I can get that. It's a little weird. I don't think you have to have a child to be a man. I'm not saying it doesn't help grow you up. But I don't think it's necessary. But okay, I can go with that. Still have no clue what the hell that has to do with the Adam Warlock's creation, the events of these two issues. The scientists in the Beehive don't learn anything. They don't change or grow because of Adam creating Adam and trying to teach him. They try why they create him so they can use him to take over the world. He apparently has enough decency somehow inside him that isn't like that. And he comes, he leaves and then comes back and kicks their asses. Nothing to do with this poem whatsoever from far as I can tell. Except to show that Adams can be a bit of a pretentious ass. Which actually is true and does come up later on in his life that he can be a bit of a pretentious, he is a bit of a pretentious ass. So, I guess in that way it fits. But otherwise, makes no friggin' sense. So everything I was babbling about for the last 15, 20 minutes has made you want to go find this issue and read it. Besides getting the original issue and shelling out the money for that, there are a couple reprints of it you can find. You can find it reprinted in the reprint series Marvel's Greatest Comics, number 50. It is in also in the Marvel Masterworks Fantastic Four, volume 7. And I believe it's volume 7 for both the hardcover and softcover. You can get it, if you don't mind black and white, get it a little cheaper in the Essential Fantastic Four, Volume 4. And if you want to watch, read it digitally, it is on the 44 Years of Fantastic Four DVD, the Essential Fantastic Four Silver Surfer DVD, and the way I read it, on the Marvel Digital Comic Unlimited website. The dawn of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happening to you. You're... Angel. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us? I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. For soon, the mole man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And now, mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream, they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. The Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You earthlings can't change the way I can. And he's not the most powerful person on Earth. I've been expecting you. For I am the thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four is more, and the planet Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatons, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. Fool, you're just a muscular freak, blind or whore. Stop! 
Fantastic Four from the very beginning witness the origins of a legend. The Fantastic Cast, ffcast.libsyn.com. Well, folks, that's it for episode two of Resurrections. Thanks again for downloading and coming back. Um, in closing, I'd like to give thanks for a few things. I'd like to thank the websites Mike's Amazing World of Marvel Comics and Comic Book Database for helping me get my facts straight of where this issue is reprinted. And also, um, when the issue was originally printed. And if you'd like to find these sites, by the way, you can find them. Mike's Amazing World can be found at dcindexes.com. And Comic Book Database can be found at comicbookdb.com. I also like to let you know that we do have an email here in case you want to send messages, love notes, hate mail, whatever, my way. The email address is resurrectionspodcast at yahoo.com. Resurrectionspodcast is all one word together, no spaces. So you can send me an email. Currently I have an exciting email that says for me to read urgently because it's a Yahoo cash prize. I can't wait to see how much I've won. But if you want, put yourself in the inbox. Or, I've said this before and I'll keep saying this, if you want to send it to me, that's fine. But you know what, if you enjoy listening to podcasts, they do like getting some kind of feedback back from people just to know that someone's out there. So send it to somebody else at least. Send them an email. Send them a comment on iTunes or wherever. Just send them something. Let them know you're there. All right, so I hope you all be back on the 16th of March. We'll have episode three where we skip, jump away from the Fantastic Four and we're going to go see Chris Hemsworth. That's right. Adam is now going to be appearing for a few issues in The Mighty Thor. I'll see you then, guys. Bye. The opening theme music for Resurrections is Intro Pompeii by Alina Rise, and the closing music is Dark and Dramatic by DJ Puzzle. Both are licensed by the Creative Commons license. You can find Lino Rise at free-intro-music.com and DJ Puzzle at peaceloveproductions.com. No spaces. Links to both can be found on the Tumblr page. Resurrections, an Adam Warlock podcast, is a fan-made production, and I have no copyright or holding, and I make no claims whatsoever over the characters mentioned in this episode. Page six. This is the part where the three scientists are, uh, the white-haired scientist tells the other two about his fail-safe backup plan to deal with their creation in case, you know, they um, can't figure it out. 
Well, folks, that's it for episode two of Resurrections. Thanks again for joining. Ugh, Christ. <laughs>